Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to episode one of Laughter is the Best Placebo. I'm your host, comedian Simon Kane. This is the podcast that intends to shine a light on mental health one issue at a time. In each episode, I'll be taking a comedian who has had to battle some sort of mental health issue. We'll be discussing how it changed them for the better or worse and trying to learn from their experiences. I should say, nobody involved in this podcast is a medical professional and it should not be used as a substitute for talking to a therapist, counsellor or doctor about something that you are struggling with. My aim for this podcast is to show how we all have a few demons that we keep inside ourselves and to make it easier for us to talk about them openly because that is the best way of handling them. It is not meant as a quick fix for any serious issues you're dealing with. In this episode, I am talking to alternative English comedian, writer and actor Robin Ince. He is best known for presenting the BBC radio show Infinite Monkey Cage with Brian Cox. But for the purposes of this podcast, he is most well known for quitting stand-up in 2015 as an experiment. Increasingly having to deal with his imposter syndrome, Robin decided to see if he could live without the one thing he's always wanted to be and where his identity would be without it. Now he's back performing, we met up to discuss the findings of his experiment and what we can all learn from his time out of being a comedian. This podcast is going to be a regular thing. I'm ironing out just how to make it regular and how regular it will be. At the moment I'm ironing out how that will work. I'm thinking of doing it as an experimental six-part series for the rest of the year, which means it will be coming out once a fortnight-ish, but I'm still trying to work out whether I can keep to that schedule based on my other commitments. Having said that, I started another podcast two years ago, and I intended on doing it monthly, and since then I've gone from doing it monthly to weekly to fortnightly, and that's where it stayed. So, who knows? All I know is this episode has been sitting on my hard drive for two months, and that is two months too long. If you like the concept of the show, please do subscribe. I have half a dozen more episodes that just need editing, so this won't be a one-off. I've also made a Facebook group for you to join if you want to give me any feedback directly. It's linked in the show notes, or you can search for Laughter is the Best Placebo Podcast on Facebook, obviously. Trigger warnings. I hope by this point in the intro you know you're about to listen to a discussion on mental health and some things in the chat might be triggering. I love trigger warnings on paper but I do always try and watch out because there's a fine line between putting a trigger warning on something and patronising the listener. So for this episode I'm going to specifically highlight some things, namely sleep deprivation, overworking, online abuse, imposter syndrome, the voices in your head and hypervigilance as they're all discussed in detail but there's more. So I can't guarantee what's going to trigger you and what isn't going to trigger you. In each episode, I will try and highlight some of the big issues at the top, just so that everyone's aware of what we're getting ourselves into. But I'm going to treat you all like adults and say, look, it's a mental health podcast. If you 
get triggered or you feel like this is too much or you don't want to listen anymore pause it come back to it delete it off your computer whatever whatever you need to do to deal with it don't feel like you have to listen all the way through if you do find it too much or if you're finding it's having a negative impact on you please take care and i hope you enjoy the show now without any more delays this is robin ince I suppose starting off on imposter syndrome, which I, the first thing I should say is it's not a syndrome. Uh, it's uh, it, 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 imposter. There's, there's different terms that are used for it. it it's not as far as a syndrome. Uh, it was probably, it was the 1970s uh, where an academic started to notice uh, her suspicion of her own level of failure, whether she was performing well enough and it becomes something of an obsession and I think it's an interesting idea because uh, it basically for me it's the fact that in most situations I think a professional situation in particular this shouldn't be me I shouldn't have this job I mean I've been a stand-up for 25 years I've made a living doing it for 25 years this week I was doing a, uh, a benefit gig with Al Murray and Dane Baptiste and uh, who else was on it there was uh, um, I can't remember it was, it was uh, I only got there towards the end so I didn't see everyone but I'm there backstage going what am I doing here here. these other people do jokes and they know what they're doing and they're um and in the same way with uh quite often when i'm doing the radio show not so much in fact only in the last six months has it changed having done 15 series of the infinite monkey cage very often uh brian cox there has said some uh, fascinating idea about the ultimate heat death of the universe and then i will say some joke or some facetious comment and my brain's going i bet people are just thinking oh why won't he just let the pretty physicist talk and so it's a lot of it is about uh the fact that it shouldn't be you that you are not and what i found fascinating was i was at a science event where uh i was with a, a scientist athene donald who is, has done wonderful work and uh we were both getting some you know kind of badge medal whatever and i went i've no idea why i'm here i just do shows about science and blah, blah, blah. and she went i have no idea why i'm here i said no no, no you're here because you have genuinely achieved something there there is something very solid in your career and yet she couldn't see that she was like yeah but I'm, and, and the same way i argued with a, a nobel prize winner who uh he said to me i couldn't do what you do i went i do jokes i do larking about in stupid voices you have changed the possibilities of how long human beings may live and the comfort of their life yeah i know but what you do and so what i found fascinating because i do think really with what i do this should you should always have a suspicion of yourself and your worth uh whereas when i actually look at someone who has something that is so tangible something which if you want you can make the graphs to see the changes in certain areas of society or behavior which have got a genuine positive value and yet they're still going oh i don't think it should be me and so it's a, it's a yeah it's it's a, it's the constant i mean in some ways i think it's similar to i hope this answer isn't too long you can edit it but before we started recording this we were talking a little bit about the ideas of hypervigilance that sense that you are always looking at yourself everything you're just wandering around when you're sitting in a pub rather than just enjoying sitting in the pub you are thinking i wonder if people are looking over there going who's that idiot drinking a pint there is he drinking it a clumsy way why is he reading that book i find him very suspicious we should probably smash his face in and then you go and you you know you might go and buy a copy of the big issue and you think i wonder if anyone saw me saw me at the gig the other day I went, oh that's good isn't it there look he's buying the big issue that must mean he's a good person you know and all the time you are out of your and I think that also feeds into a sense of imposter syndrome because it's about or it can be about for me a, a perpetual sense of judgment and one that is so rigorous that you will always find the disappointment in yourself 
Agreed. Completely. For me, uh, I can't remember who said it, but there was a really good phrase where they said, um, "You'll seldom think about your. You'll seldom think about how much people think about you when you realise how little they. Oh, what was it? Do you know that phrase? I don't. It's it's. Ah, oh, get after. I'm, that's such a bad edit for that. But it's it basically it was a thing uh, that someone said. Oh, it's going to annoy me now. Do you know when you know? Yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah. Got, no, quite, It's but, when your brain refuses. It's a fascinating thing. And Dean Burnett, who's a neuroscientist, who's written a great book called The Idiot Brain, talks about why we have that thing where your brain is actually going it's in here by the way yeah, yeah. but I'm not going to give it to you not now and a pressure situation yeah. and yet if you were on stage which of course a different mm. pressure to the, a conversation even recorded conversation I bet it would just go here you go yeah it's adrenaline wouldn't it be with that yeah. kick in and it make your brain go oh shit we got to remember it now because there's going to be um what's the word uh social embarrassment yeah. if, you, if you can't do it um yeah no for me that's a really interesting idea that that we think about ourselves way more than anyone else mm. and i can imagine that that can mount up especially when you're on your own a lot traveling around a lot in your own head a lot where you're trying to work on the show um what what was I mean, I've read a few things. I'm going to presume that no one here uh, listening to this knows your story of how you stopped doing stand. How, how long are you? How, how unsuccessfully I stopped doing stand up. Yeah, yeah you've unsuccessfully quit. It, it was. I mean, that. Could, do you want me to tell you a little bit the background? Yeah, of that? go on. Just let's assume no one's heard it, your story. It was uh, basically I was touring so much. I would find myself, you know, I, I had I had a great few months in one way. I mean, I've I, been out to America. I was, uh, Brian Cox and I were doing some gigs out there for the Infinite Monkey Cage. Ended up things like, you know, meeting Steve Martin. I was then touring in Australia. And it was like, you know, taking my own solo show around the cities. And yet, every time that I actually wasn't on stage, I was unhappy. I was just thinking, why am I doing this? And I, the show, I believed in the show more than I believed in a lot of shows that I'd done in the past. But I kept looking, I would see other stand-ups, I would see, you know, every time I think of someone like, whether it's Daniel Kitson or, or Bridget Christie, uh, and I would see what they were doing, and I would think, that, that's stand-up, that's, that's stand-up with art and purpose, and what I do, it, what is the point in being so humdrum? And so I think that's one of the things that really got in the way, which was uh, at times of marginal drunkenness or blips of arrogance, I would go, this is a good show and this has purpose. And then that would disappear. And because I was just every night in a different hotel room, and again, as you said, it is that constant, the, the solitary chance to reanalyze yourself until even if you've had a great gig, you have found, ah, I've managed to analyze myself enough to notice that one of those sentences could well have been misinterpreted. And I think the man in the front row was very disappointed in me. And thus I have found my failure. I can now have insomnia. Would you, were you looking for where you'd failed then or was it just because everything comes down to habit hobbies and routines in life mm. so were you in a routine that meant that you were looking for a t way to be unhappy i would get it's almost like i don't think it was necessarily that i think it was almost that the better that i felt a show was the more fearful i was at failing to actually deliver that show uh, this is also, I think this may well be linked to insomnia as well. I, I had two and a half years of touring with, with very little sleep. And of course, that is not, you know, mentally healthy. But I, I think it was that thing of going, oh, this is what it should have been. There's a great line. I've, I've talked about it before. Actually, I don't think I have. I've only talked about it on stage the other night. Gully Jimpson, who is a, a fictional character in a great novel called The Horse's Mouth by Joyce Carey and also was turned into a film. I think the only um, uh, screenplay that Alec Guinness wrote. I may be wrong about that. And and um, he's an artist and every time he sees a blank wall he goes the right blank wall I should add he goes yes 
that's the one that I must cover in, in the art that I want to create. There's a beautiful sequence in which he does an incredible painting on a blank wall of uh, some feet, just many feet. And at the end of, of the sequence, he's about to leave that wall finally. The wall is complete. And for a moment, he has this look, which is a look of satisfaction. And then he turns and he puts his hand to his head and he goes, oh, why doesn't it look like it does in here? And I think that is not merely, you know, for anyone who's doing any form of art, any form of creativity, I think that's a very common thing. When we start writing our Edinburgh shows, we have these moments where we go, and at that point everyone will go, I can't believe that something could be so pithy, so, so educational so academic and yet so hilarious and blah 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 and then you see yourself on stage going look at me doing my voices and you think is this what i imagined and i think that then of course leaks through this is not merely something of of, of comedians and actors and playwrights and painters and sculptors this is something of us in our whole lives which is we have a sense of what we can be as ourselves in our mind and then we have to actually go out into the world and we are no longer singular observers imagining ourselves we are perpetually seeing the way that we're looked at by others and of course because we don't see that everyone in their mind or many people in their mind is going oh god how am i stuck in this party everyone else looks so confident you know that this is yeah, part yeah. of the issue that we have is everyone else can look so confident and of course many of them are you know that, that the the struggling of of, of the duck mm. you know beneath the surface that's going on all the time i think that's one of the and i don't know what intrigues me is because i think there's a worry that the moment that you think in any way that uh, oh i have these weird thoughts and then you think probably everyone else does and I'd, and you can get worried that you become self-aggrandizing i think over time i've realized increasingly that uh many people have confused the fact that the exterior of someone is also the interior that their exterior confidence is their interior confidence and i think that's where so we look at so many people and go i wish i could do what they do i wish i was them and they may well be looking back perhaps not at us perhaps at other people thinking exactly the same thing i'll try another one this might be a bit easier how many people here when they're on their own in the house sometimes talk to themselves at quite reasonable volume a few, okay, smash them. We'll try and build on that. How many people here, when they're on their own in the house, sometimes, even if there's no music playing, do a little dance? <laughs> if you don't, you should. It's quite just that. I still got it going on, yeah. <laughs> Morning, postman. Oh, God, I've got to close the curtains. Did my worst kimono as well. <laughs> Anyone here ever stood on a train station platform, looked at the person in front of them and just thought, to hell with it, I'm going to shove them in front of the train. <laughs> Always more psychos than dancers. That's what I found out. <laughs> Sometimes I can see an audience going like this. No, we didn't. And in their eyes they go, yes, it was on Tuesday. <laughs> Look at you in your Hessian anorak. You deserve to die. I think the one thing that kind of unites a lot of people is being lonely or being uh, sort of ha having, having a thought in their head that tells them they are not, they are, they are the only person feeling this thing. Mm. And... I think particularly with uh, mental health stuff, you, you, you can, it can convince you of certain things and then tell you not to talk about it. Because if you do, you could look like the weirdo or the one that, you know, sort of, oh, you feel like that, do you? I don't want to hang out with them. They're too, they, they're going to make me weird or whatever. Um, and I think particularly with comedians, like you said, the lifestyle of, of being a performer, especially a touring one. Um, I, I did my first sort of 
DIY tour, should we say, like last year. And the hard part for me was just sort of not having any time to myself because I'd be crashing on people's floors and so, yeah, sofas and whatever. And and it did nothing for my imposter syndrome because I'd be like, do they not like the show? Oh, fuck, mm. I, bet they, I bet they wish they hadn't said they could let me stay now. And I suppose if you're on your own in a hotel room, it's different. But I suppose it's worse. They're, all, they're all similar experiences, though. There's yeah. that, I mean, the loneliness thing is there's a great line, which I often get, it's Louis Bunuel, the, 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 the great filmmaker and, and, uh, and also a surrealist at times. Uh, he said, uh, um, solitude is perfect as long as you've got someone to talk to about it afterwards. And I think that's sometimes what can happen if you have any existence which is uh, um, where you are, are spending a lot of time on your own, um, is that you can feel locked into that. You don't feel that. And yet, as a stand-up, I mean, I'm, I'm at, at the time of talking to you now, I'm in a very uh, content place obviously you know thinking oh my god i've got two new edinburgh shows to write and somehow but overall and i think one of the things that we're fortunate to have as stand-ups is the ability that if you allow yourself to sometimes talk about what you may be worried some of the weirdest shit in your head you will find more often than not the people come up to you afterwards and say i thought i mean i've sometimes had people say oh i'm a bit annoyed because I used to think I was weird and you've taken that away from me. Yeah. And I think, you know, that when people, whether, you know, I think of my friend Josie Long, you know, a lot of what she's expressing on stage is something that, uh, you know, it, is, is a personal take on whether it is love or politics. People can associate with that because what they see is they see honesty. And I, I, I mean, the two ones, one that I, I used to have some stuff about impulsive thoughts because I found those very interesting. And I know that they can lead to uh, mental health issues. I know uh, that initially, you know, what, what most of us have is, well, well, what, what I shouldn't say most because I don't know. I don't know the statistics. But, you know, a lot of people have obsessive compulsive behaviour. Uh, that doesn't mean it gets to being a disorder. It is greatly helped, I think, if you are able to sometimes say to people, I had this weird thought, or I keep doing this and I don't know why. And then sometimes they will, in the same way with impulsive thoughts, which, uh, for instance, uh, I talked about the, the impulsive thought of when you're holding a baby, the fear that you would just suddenly throw it down the stairs or do something hideous, you know, just, oh my God, why have I dropped the baby out that window? I, I like how you separated dropping it down the stairs and doing something hideous. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the uh, um, I shouldn't say, but surprisingly malleable, as I, as I remember when my, <laughs> when my son fell at, at the age of two and uh, I was not involved in that at all um, oh sorry and it was no 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 he's fine he was absolutely fine oh, it was literally I was looking through the letterbox and he waved at me and then I saw him step backwards and was like oh no and you're hearing I, the, it is very very hard to uh, replicate in any way what happens to your heart and your mind really. but you know once after 20 minutes you went do you want a nice lolly and you go yeah you think it should be okay it should be okay yeah. he has he has a desire for a zoom now so that's okay but um, talking about that, I was surprised at the number of people who had never known that that thought is in no way a desire. That it's this moment where uh, the brain, from what I know from current thinking about it, the brain, when you are in a situation where you must take responsibility, sometimes says, hey, don't do this. And of course, in the way that it's delivered, it gives you a visual picture and you go, oh, do I want to do that? And you don't. I mean, the difference is, of course, if you think about it and for a moment you go, oh, I'd quite like to throw the baby down the stairs. Oh, hang on, I shouldn't. That's a different thing. You're not. The first reaction, and people have these problems with kind of uh, sexual thoughts sometimes, uh, violent thoughts, and, and the key to all of these things is, did, you, did it start off with a sense of desire and then lead to, oh, I mustn't do it? 
And for the majority of people, from what we know, no, it doesn't. It starts off going, you mustn't do that. And then we confuse that merely from the imagining it to being a belief that this may be something that is within us. And that's a very dangerous thing. You, you know, there's, there's a thing, I think it's called pure O now. And I've read various cases of like young people who, who've had this little moment of imagining a scenario and then believed they have thought that is what they are as a person. They thought that those particular sexual thoughts or whatever they might be, oh my God, I am this. And then of course that just builds and it builds and it builds and it becomes the terror of the fact that, you know, oh, I better not interact with those people because I may well be this person who is, it, it's very often, it's the thing that is the great taboo of a society. So I think from what I've gathered, when there was a lot of stuff in the newspapers uh, about paedophilia, that means that you may well get a spike of people who suddenly get thought to think, oh my God, am I a paedophile? Because that, that must be the worst thing to be. And therefore they can get caught up in this, this, this horrible, uh, you know, really, self-destructive um, narrative of, of belief which is, is not a belief and is not, not true. I have been fascinated by the fact that they are wait, making sure paedophile season is on again and the government are campaigning saying that one of the things they should do is stop paedophiles living near schools. Now my one thought is that I don't think it's proximity that drives them on. <laughs> I don't think if it's a bit of a walk they're gonna give up, you know. <laughs> Brilliant, they're nearby. How long's the walk? A mile. Oh, I don't know if I can be bothered. <laughs> can I have some of the sweets? No, we'll have nothing to beguile them with then, you idiot. <laughs> but I think we were talking before we started about identity and social constructs and stuff. And I think uh, a lot of media makes it out like comedians are depressed or sad and lonely and all that kind of stuff. Do you think, because I, I read a few things about where you were saying that you didn't feel like a real comedian. Mm. Ironically, do you think you were being a real comedian because of that? You were taking on that identity of being like, am I good enough? Am I this? And if everyone's feeling like that, or do you feel like it was the reverse for that for you? I don't think it was connected to that, really. I think, I mean, I think there's a, gr a great line by Spike Milligan, who, of course, did have a lot of mental health problems, but he, he personally believed that it wasn't true that comedians may, and that's also with knowing Peter Sellers, uh, he didn't think it was, was true. He said, for him, it was like a black ink stain on a white shirt because you are someone who is going out there to make people laugh and be jolly. It therefore seems such a contradiction to be sad that it seems uh, a, a more dominant truth in this. But that said, the other day I was talking to Phil Jupiter's and I said, I'm, I'm trying to think. I, I reckon comedians aren't any more, you know, kind of mad than any other group. No way, mate. And he, he, he disagreed with me. I like Joe jo Brand um, said uh, when I talked talk to her for a documentary a while ago and, and she, she, her personal experience, again, someone who's worked in mental health for a long period of time, she said that she didn't necessarily think that comedians were mentally ill, but most of the ones she knew were definitely damaged people. My perhaps fear is that it's a lot of people feel that they are again like that imposter syndrome a lot of people feel they're not the, the human being that they should be and it's a real struggle to be a self-conscious creature aware of your own mortality aware that other people may well have you know thought have thoughts about other people aware of the fact that as we know now with social media it's never been more clear about how judgmental people are to have all those awarenesses i think it, it's not it's it's it can be pretty tricky it can be a struggle to be human and, and be happy and so i think it might be i don't know looking at the statistics for instance you know suicide comes up and as far as i know you know farmers dentists ballet dancers all of those are 
you know, more frequent than the uh, death by their own hand of a comedian. But when someone like Robin Williams kills himself, the fact that we've spent 40 years watching him be such an incredible force on stage and in films and delivering so much joy to so many people, of course the contradiction seems so great that it becomes, I think, a story that sticks in our mind with greater dominance. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think, yeah, I think it's easier to sell that story than to go far more murder themselves today, mm. partly because uh, of fame as well. I think, yeah. I think it comes down to a clickbait society that kind of helps out. And you mentioned social media. I mean, with, with social media becoming more prevalent throughout your career, or in the last few mm. years at least, did that contribute to it? Were you getting like tweets or, or messages from people saying you're not funny you're shit you're was it you <laughs> the uh no again even that is you you can um you can find it if you look for it that's the thing is if you want to find out if you in any way have a public presence yeah if you really search for it you can overall i think i i mean i was amazed when i just did this this arena tour with brian cox and and one of the things that worried me was we'd be playing to like ninety thousand people over the space of three weeks and again i was thinking oh god are they gonna be there going it was so brilliant and brian was there going and the stars are wonderful now robin it's look at me i blew my brian blessed impersonation and i was expecting to get quite a lot of uh or, or at least some people who would be why were you there we came to see the pretty man and what amazed me was that uh, over the whole thing three negative tweets i mean i'm sure there may well have been other people who were not happy with it or whatever you know but i don't need to of course that's always going to happen uh but but actually the fact was only three and two of them i kind of replied and they were actually very nice about it all and the third one it turned out was a very energetic uh, anti-semite and uh the the first his pinned tweet was just found out Stephen Fry's uh, half Jewish so that's beginning to explain something and looking back yeah I know and you can try and look at that optimistically as if to go maybe he means it explains his wit yeah, but yeah. I don't think it does yeah. and and of course then I'd made that mistake of going right now I have to uh, mute this person because I'd accidentally not checked first of all to find out the direction they wish to come from and it turns out there it also amazed me i thought here is someone who looking at their timeline seems to be pretty anti-semitic and they've come to see a physics show and 20th century physics is based around some are uh, you know jewish minds great minds that also happen to be whether whether secular or religiously jewish but you know they go so you're gonna have issues with Feynman mm. and Einstein and the <laughs> I don't feel like he's doing his research. I don't feel yeah. like... <laughs> Or he's found an option to somehow go, but that's different. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know who was you mentioned Phil Jupiter, so I remember he had a really good bit of advice where he said the problem with Twitter is that everything's written in the same font. So you feel like you have to take it all the same level of gravitas. And the reality is you don't have to take everyone as seriously as you know, like every person has a different level to which you have to take them as their face value. I think sometimes it's good to spend every day imagining that most things are a spoof until proven to actually be reality if you start off by believing things are i presume that's a parody and don't get too because I, I do have a habit of getting overly caught up with uh and 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 arguing with people and trying to argue kindly and then sometimes i go it's just if you're in a room with that many people how on earth can you have the energy to you know so that, that what's that cartoon i can't remember that one about I, I uh i can't come to bed yet i've just found out someone else is wrong on the internet <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you yeah. know that that yeah. So I, I think that can play a part, though. I think if I go back to, for instance, when I was supporting Ricky Gervais about, oh, God, it's probably 12 years ago or something, that was the first time I think that I really got some 
aggressive communication from people and that was very disturbing i think for a lot of people the first time you get people who you don't know being very aggressive to you and hating you you can start to find yourself walking around the town and thinking i wonder if they're in this town i wonder if someone's looking at me now with the same hatred that because you've not been aware before i i think in you know unless you there's been a particular pub which has had a particular volume of graffiti about you on the toilet door you've you're not necessarily aware of of that hatred and i think that that played a part and i'm it's only really now i i, I can feel that i've got a certain distance from not merely that stuff but just generally that thing that it's out there and the internet means that you know there are people out there who you don't have to find them. And I think that can be very disturbing. And I think, again, of friends of mine who, more often than not, of course, it's, you know, being the internet the way it is, more often than not, it, it, it's women who've had incredible, aggressive... Tra- and, and it quite amazes me, some of the people that I know who are able to continue to stand up and to have the opinions they have and share those opinions where I think wow the viciousness and the vitriol and I think it is it's a very very triumphant thing I mean there was a friend of mine recently who I'm not going to mention merely because I don't in any way want to regenerate what happened before but two weeks ago she was getting the the level of threat and the unpleasantness of the imagination that was aimed at her for merely having an opinion and because it's been going on for so long different people doing that she now has such a you know that the, 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 it doesn't pierce her anymore but yeah there's a lot of damage and people are very gleeful if they can shut people up and gleeful if they can damage you not everyone does it for that reason I think also with the internet some people kind of forget that they're not communicating with an avatar they are communicating with a human being and I've kind of addressed that before when I've seen friends of mine receive um, comments from individuals and it's not when it's directly at them it's when someone goes uh, I went to see at what a load of rubbish and da-da-da. and I'll say don't and they go well I'm just telling them I said no you're not telling them that's like being in a room and knowing someone's across the room and saying oh oh I'll tell you who I uh, I don't know if you've seen that Simon's very bad isn't he have you seen his new rubbish show which by the way I'm, I think it's not going to be a rubbish show and I'd like to say it's not in any way uh, but if that, that's that, that's a horrible <laughs> thing to do you know and, and that's very different to actually going up and having and, and saying hmm. I was disappointed by this. And I think that can be very useful. I had someone that I know came to a gig of mine in Oxford and said, can I afterwards send me a thing on Facebook? Said, there's something you said and I don't, I'm not really sure about it. And we had a little back and forth. And at the end of it, I said, yeah, yeah, you, it's very persuasive and that's very useful because I think you're correct in that. And I think uh, what I did on stage was not the point that I w- would have liked to have made. And, and therefore, and I think that's the thing is in the other way, you have this tremendously useful thing, which is perpetual feedback. But on the other side of it, as we know, the negative glows brightly for days and the positive disappears like dust very quickly. Well, that's, that's the, um, I can't remember the psychological term for it, but it's on the news, they'll play like, you know, like uh, uh, no, a car being burnt next to the head of the um, newsreader, and you'll be looking at the car being burnt mm. just because of the way we're hardwired to keep an eye out for you know things that could hurt us. Mm. Um, so I feel like one negative tweet, especially if it's like an early one for someone who's not used to getting that, will stand out a lot more than say two hundred. You were so good tonight. Oh, I loved you on the Apollo or whatever it was. Yeah. But yeah, I, I only wondered if it was a contributing factor to your... I, I think there was a point where I think, because this happened about, is it two or three years ago, two years ago, and I really felt I'd reached a point where I sensed that I was unravelling. And I was lucky in that because I think I was aware, again, sometimes hypervigilance has its advantages, doesn't it? And I was kind of, I, I, I was aware 
that there was a level of unhappiness that was not required and that maybe if I just stopped going out every single night and and yet generally having at that particular period the shows were overall I think some of the most successful shows I did but I was constantly aware of when of of the possibility of it unraveling and the fact that is it only tonight I got away with it tonight will I get away with it tomorrow will I get away with it tomorrow and there's also that other thing which is when you have a show that you don't feel was good enough then that is the one where people saw your reality you may have 10 shows in a row that are triumphant. You may even get some encore some night. You have people cheering, yet you then, within that run, have one show where... And Edinburgh is a great example of that. Edinburgh is very difficult <laughs> because people are not watching comedy like they normally are. They're sometimes seeing seven or eight different shows a day, not merely comedy, theatre, dance, the whole thing. And so they walk in in a different way. They're in a hurry to get to the next show. Sometimes they don't clap for very long at the end and they've got to leave immediately. You can have a triumphant show and then immediately a failure of a show and you're in the same room. And as far as you know, you replicated every detail perfectly. But it's that one that goes... That's what I am. Everything else was luck. Mm. And I think you can get very caught up in that. And I still do. It, it, it's in, in, in the last week, there was one show that I thought that was... I had a, I had a brilliant night in, in Glastonbury. I really enjoyed the, doing Glastonbury show. And then two days later, I was doing some different stuff. And I thought, oh, that was... Uh, Oh, no, none of that works. We talked before we started about how, uh, different levels here, but we sometimes put things in the show to keep us fresh and keep us on our toes. Do you think that's a contributing factor then? Because if you're playing the room and trying to be as in the moment as you can be, obviously every show is going to be slightly different and every audience is different. So you're trying to obviously slightly second-guess the audience because Mm. you're trying to keep it fresh for them and how you feel they're going to take it, but also for yourself. And so if there's not a... Uh, a, a, a consistent piece, if you like, like like it would be maybe with a play, then you're sort of adding to your neurosis of so. Say you tried something or ch- changed a line just to keep it fresh for you, and then it didn't work that night. You could you could go off on one in your head and go, oh crap, I missed I, I misdid that. I, I, they, they must have hated that. The callback didn't work. Do you know what? Less so. I actually think that I would get more neurotic over repetition of exactly the same show because that allows you night by night to go why didn't that bit work that bit didn't work whereas yeah. when i do something new i mean i always find it fascinating the first time you get an idea and you go and it and it and, and it's just you know the, the 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 delight when the reaction is great and then sometimes it takes five or six other shows if you want to return i mean sometimes you can never return to it mm. but sometimes you think no that definitely is an idea but it takes a while to somehow replicate what previously the delight they saw in your eyes and didn't realise that that was part of what was going on that that delivered that extra bit of laughter and I but I I, I think overall it's it's yeah when I replicate shows and there's sometimes I just think mm, that's that's you know diminishing returns and you like you said you were the tour support for Ricky Gervais and then he offered it to you again and I was told you turned it down the yeah the the science tour and that was the main reason was I mean it's a really weird thing we're, we're still friends but anyone who's seen any on the DVD extra there's uh, uh, I think there were two short films done one, one on fame and one on uh, politics was it called Living with Ricky and it's such a strange thing because he gets bored very easily and he therefore needs playthings to torture and if you're the uh, support act it may well be you so it's a very full on experience but the main reason I didn't do it was I I think when I first did it, I'd almost not realised how famous he was because he was someone that I'd known since before he was a stand-up. And I realised that if I did a another big tour with him, I could end up being just perpetually defined as his uh, warm-up act. And also, I mean, I'm sure there's some people who know nothing about me and would only know me as that. And that those, but I've got 
I really wanted to make sure that I continued to develop other worlds. I've been doing more and more the kind of comedy involving science stuff. I had a show that I was doing called Book Club with lots of kind of disparate group of, 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 of oddball acts. And I wanted to develop that. I wanted to make sure that it almost like I didn't want it to become a job. I mean, I think that's one of the incredible things that it can happen in this world is you go, wow, this is my living. And that's part of what the imposter syndrome comes. You go, because when someone goes, what do you do? What's your job? I still go, I, I don't know if I could call it a career. And yet it's almost the entirety of my adult life. You know, it is has been doing this, but I still see it as most of most of the the actual bits of it, not sometimes the peripheral bits, but the actuality of suddenly getting the chance to work with incredible people or just be allowed to write a book and or you know make a radio show you know when i was able to make the radio documentary partly about um robin williams and when i get the chance to stand in the middle of the the um like lovell telescope you know you know there in jodrell bank and that's part of my job is just to be standing in the middle of this beautiful piece of of, of science that is like art and i think this is all right now this is all the other options and of course sometimes when you get I mean it's always a difficult thing and I'm sure you feel which is when you are uh down and I don't think I've never I don't think suffered from uh, uh depression uh I always say I had I have had sometimes a gray dog for a long period of time I've never luckily for myself never had the black dog but you you can the moment you're out of it it seems ridiculous yeah. It seems a preposterous thing. And if people ask you about it, you go, oh, I don't know what was going on there. Like, well, rubbish. And it's it's an odd thing, isn't it? When you when you look back and you think, I look back now and think of that year and a half of touring when I really felt that was unravelling. And and I think, what on earth was I thinking? No, I've never, dr drugs and me just don't work. I have a lot of friends who do drugs, and older than me as well, who would say, and I say that you should do drugs. Right? Yeah, we still experiment with drugs. Yeah, yeah, we experiment with drugs. Yeah, 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 yeah. we still experiment. You should experiment. We experiment. And what annoys me is anyone who ever says they experiment with drugs is whenever you actually ask to see if there are results, any thesis, <laughs> any form of bar chart, nothing at all, nothing at all. They don't experiment with drugs, they just smoke joints willy-nilly. So, so scientifically non-specific. <laughs> I tried ecstasy once. All it did was make me slightly less miserable in a field. <laughs> yeah, and I... I uh... So anytime I repeat things in my life that trigger me, and I've made a checklist now of how to deal with it, and it's stupid, like, because like, it doesn't work, but it does work, because then by the end of the checklist, and obviously this could take a varying amount of time, but say the end of the checklist, it's like three months later, I'll be looking back at the point one and going, why, why did that even matter? Mm -hmm. And I was actually thinking about, I don't know if I'll, I'll cut this out, but I was actually thinking about <laughs> doing a podcast uh, I, I was going to do it at my last breakup, but I didn't end up doing it. But I'm going to do it on my next breakup, which is a weird thing to think about. Which is going to be um, where I record myself a daily thing of like how I'm trying to get over the breakup. Because I thought it'd be a really interesting thing to look back on and go, Jesus Christ, episode one was depressing. Isn't it, isn't it a weird? Uh, it, it's a, when I did. I think my first tour so long ago was during the time of MySpace, and uh, sorry, what? my space <laughs> and uh it was um i used to write a blog post before i went on and of course i was tremendously nervous then it was the first time that i was properly touring on my own and i started right at the beginning i said just so you know the mental state that you're going to see in these blog posts is not my mental state for the rest of the day this is i'm writing this as an experiment for what goes through your mind 
45 minutes before you go on when you know you ask and you still don't know what kind of audience you're going to get you know now generally i have a much better idea of the kind you know people also come and see my shows with a greater you know knowledge of probably what they're going to get i'm sure some of them still go oh that was not what i was expecting at all but uh overall but at that so i'd write these i wrote this blog post and i had to stop because people went oh, i'm just so worried about you i think you know are you okay and i was going no 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 but i i i, I the preface mm. is it, this is a point that your mind goes oh my god why am i here what am i doing how many people have turned up i don't even know and they're all going to sit there and they're going to hate it and why am i doing these jokes mm. so you're at this moment of panic but I had to stop because, yeah, I was just people were getting too worried. Yeah, yeah. I I read a thing where you said that part of the reason you stopped was the fluctuating audience numbers. So one night you'd be doing sort of 10 people, next night you'd be doing 500. And for me, I would think if you were able to tour with someone like uh, Ricky's level, who would be getting, not maybe not sold out all the time, but pretty large numbers of, of the number of chairs that were there, that consistency would probably be quite useful. Mm. There is there's something about... I mean, again, all of these things, I think at the time I said this is just the pathetic nature of an ego. There's a bit where sometimes you go, oh, I've been working really hard for ages and I've turned up to this town and it's ended up and there's, you know, 42 people here. And oh. and it's it shouldn't matter. And it actually generally doesn't. It's one of the things is my main lesson that I learned is I'm still happy to go to pretty much any town people ask they go will you come to our town and i go the likelihood is that everyone who's asked me to go to that town is everyone who will turn up that's it my problem i think was that it was perpetual so i was doing so many gigs and once you get an it's really a lot of this is solved by the problem of tiredness so when i was in that australian hotel room and i was thinking i just have to stop i hadn't properly slept for a very long time i'd done a lot of traveling on that tour in particular i had never a mixture of insomnia and jet lag meant i just could not get into sync at all i was you know awake for and so little silly you know again our frontal lobes the kind of what we might sometimes think of as as as, as the best of us the most rational of us the, the bit that we wish was in control all the time as you know in terms of just simple things like recall and wit when you're very tired those Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com bits they need to have 
sleep and you find yourself i think ending up dawdling in some of the the bits of the brain which i have a, a greater predilection for paranoia and melancholy so i think a lot of it probably came from that as well insomnia is a you know it's a bizarre i think you know i think it was george bernard Shaw, it normally is or gk chesterton who you know said to you know you always know when a man's an insomniac because he'll tell you and you end up you get that that pride in being an insomniac and then you can get and of course because you end up talking about it so much it becomes you're, you're you know you can't can't escape from it but i think that it's a it's an odd what it does to the brain it may not destroy what your abilities are on stage but i think it severely weakens the the the, the reservoir and the resolve that you have throughout the rest of the day did you find as you were becoming more and more aware of potentially not being the comedian you want to be or, or not feeling like a good enough comedian that that was becoming part of the identity you had of yourself yeah um I don't know. That's interesting. I, I mean, I think, I think part of it is it's always what I've it's what I've wanted to do since I was ten years old. You know, probably even you know, whenever I first saw Rick Mail. Yeah, I think that might have it, it. Well, it returns again to the Gully Jimson thing. That's really what it is: is the idea in the brain of what you think you can be, and and the reality when exposed. And I think that was the that was the main element in, in terms of that area. It was, you know, when you. you everyone that that moment that you can just accept that you're not going to be the greatest and even then every now and again you can't accept it but uh, even though you know it, it will not change um finding what your values are and that point of just at least if you have the chance to experiment and come up with ideas all the time they may not be as good as the ideas of that guy that you've just seen or that woman that's just doing that new show or whoever it might be but it's still probably better than most of the other ways of, of living your life it's just, I, I think a lot of it, I don't know if that's answered, sorry. Say that question again and I'll just see if I... Um... We, we were, well, we were talking before we started about the sense of identity and how that leads into your perception of yourself in mm. relation to society's constructs. And I was trying to work out whether if your brain had started telling you that you weren't a comedian... And I mean this with all due respect, by the way. That's fine. Um, if your brain was telling you, uh, I'm not a good enough comedian, look at these other ones, they're so much better than me, why am I in this green room? Did it become like more to the forefront of your consciousness that you are not a comedian? You are this person that somehow's blagged it. Um, I don't know if it did. I think. Do you know what? I, I would find it hard, really, to uh, take that in isolation because there were so many other things around it. I think. But I mean, that probably that that would have played a part. You know, when you uh, watch someone being you know truly magnificent and you just think wow that is i mean that's one of the things that i love about when i do work with people because so much of it is working on my own is when i watch the way that people's minds work and of course also we have this other problem which is the way other people's minds work is like a shamanic act it's magic because you can't your brain doesn't work like that of course anything we are able to produce is humdrum because we were able to produce it yeah. and we knew that we you know it's it's it's, it's the woody allen thing isn't it of woody allen just not realising that his greatest comedies and his greatest films are these incredible works of art but because he was able to he'll always be looking at Ingmar Bergman and going I never made Wild Strawberries you know I never made Persona all of those things yeah I know yeah no I'd agree with that I've got a friend who's just started a, a printing firm and um, every time he sends me something I'm like this is fucking amazing and he's just like but you know I should have spent longer on the whatever and you're like you, you can always see the holes in your own 
sort of artwork, I think, which, which kind of adds to it. Um, I was or you to- can be Salvador Dali, who uh, would wake up every day and uh, he wrote about that. Uh, every day I wake up and I thank the Lord that I am Salvador Dali. And I think, what will this wonderful Salvador Dali do today? And I think there are, you, you do meet people where you go, whoa! Your confidence is, and, and they may well have doubt somewhere in there, but you really go, no, there are some people, mm. and you can almost see it in what they create. Mm. Who? So I, I think there's an interesting, as there would be across all human beings, there is a, a, a spectrum of, of self-doubt. Yeah, and arrogance. And yeah. yeah. What did you do the day after your last gig, when you stopped? Um, do you know what? I just I, I did family stuff. I was like, one of my first things was I now have uh, more time. I mean, that was very much part of the consideration as well. You know, I have a, a, a son and I enjoy spending time with him and I enjoy spending time with my family. And so for about a week, I was going, oh, this is fuck. Because I was a bit suspicious. I was thinking, what if when I stop being a comedian, do I lose all definition of myself? What if that's all I ever was? And therefore, now you're nothing. But in fact, for a week, I was absolutely fine. And then I started to go, let's come up with a project for this time. So I then spent uh, a month and a half. Every single day, I would write a short story. Uh, and I'd write somewhere around three, 4,000 words. And I'd just write this short story. I don't even know what I've done with them now. But it was just to do something. Because I thought, oh, there's still stuff in there. But I don't want to think of it in stand-up. And that was another interest. When Once I decided, I was going to stop stand-up for a while uh, my brain didn't create any stand-up so the last six months of the tour I was generally just honing and changing what that show whereas normally I'd always go oh I've got a new idea I've got a new idea but it was odd my brain was kind of like yeah you don't need any of this now because you're just doing this tour and you're not working towards another tour you don't need to keep creating stuff and then it was like now you can why not just write some stories was it easier to answer that question at parties when people say, what do you do? Do you just go... I don't go to parties. Oh, okay. you have, you've confused me for someone very different. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry, <laughs> is this not Ricky? No, okay. yeah. <laughs> no. It's, uh, um, it was... Yeah, even then, I've always found that a weird thing. I, it, there's uh, Ho- Howard Zinn, who uh, was a wonderful uh, his, historian and, uh, and sometime anarchist, and he would always say that one of the problems he had at party conversations, people always say, what do you do, not what do you think? And so we end up defining people very simply by going, if you, know, if, if you say to someone you're a comedian, you may well then be imagined to be whatever they most recently saw on Live at the Apollo or Mot of the Week. And of course, in the same way, if you just say, because this is one of the problems I've talked about this before, but with labelling, uh, a musician will normally probably define what kind of musician they are. What are you? Oh, I play jazz. Uh, what are you? Oh, I'm in death metal band, whatever it might be. Uh, I see they have a death metal party there. Oh, it's lovely to see you. Uh, death metal, actually, yes. This rosé is very cheeky. Um, but it's um, a comedian covers quite a range of possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I've, I think I always found it... I remember years ago when a friend of mine said uh, introduced me to a friend and went, oh, this is Robin, he's a comedian. And I said, at the time I said, oh, I'm not, because I wasn't making a living from it. And I, did, I, I said, I want to be a comedian. But as yeah, I'm, I'm not. Um, but generally it didn't really... You know, when people ask me what I do, I kind of go, oh, I do some shows. I do show. I do kind of sciencey shows, and that's why I've all, you know I have a different kind of. Uh, I'd probably be more interested in you know knowing what they did because I'll be able to get more out of that. Two questions have come out of that. One, if you knew that comedy as a, or stand up as a label covers so many different things, why were you comparing yourself to other people and going, look how much better they are when logically a you're not them and b it can be anything. I think it was just I, I was. It was about imagination on display. 
you know most of the comics it was you watch some people and you think that is to take people on that journey from that idea is you know a magnificent it's it's when you watch someone like well maria bamford at the moment is someone who uh her series on netflix is absolutely fantastic and i uh i don't have mind envy but i probably would have done a while ago i would have gone oh, how did she do that and now i can kind of quite comfortably watch it and just go that's just brilliant and it's wonderful that it exists and i think that's again helped by getting slightly further out from the perpetual world of stand-up i've been able to just sit back and just enjoy other people's work just because it exists or you know louis ck would be i suppose a, another example of when you watch his stand-up but yeah maria bamford's thing and her new solo show as well is just fantastic um but I think that was it. It was it was not necessarily because they were the comedian I wanted to be. It was because I believed it was the superiority of imagination. I have. It's really weird. If you are, if you're in your thirties here, th there's a weird or forties. There's a weird thing that happens where you don't realise you've got older. Previous generations were lucky. Us generation, we don't know we've got older. I have this thing where you know the last generations, for instance, you know they were lucky. What happened was they got to their late thirties developed some kind of work-related lung disease, <laughs> coughed up black spittle that would sizzle on a grate, and then died at the age of 47, right? It was sad, but at least they had a narrative arc, right? <laughs> Whereas I'm of this generation that's just there going, yeah, I like the Arctic monkeys too, they're brilliant, aren't they? Look, I'm wearing Converse. <laughs> Who's that sad old twat? It's reflective surface. And... <laughs> you suddenly realise you may well be the paedophile at the gig in their eyes. It's not a pleasant moment. And in terms of your uh, management and agents and, and any kind of team you had around you, how did they take the news that you just weren't going to be working for? They didn't believe me, I would imagine. Probably quite right. Uh... No, everyone was fine with it because I was. I already, I, you know, I have lots of other little projects as well. You know, stand up is not the only thing that defines me now, and also they're not particularly worried. You know, I, I, I don't work with real kind of like, you know, some of these these these, these glamorous, hard nosed uh, agents who have watched a film made in nineteen seventy two about what an agent's meant to be and go around in shiny coats. Uh, I don't really work with those people. You know, I work with all manner of uh, mixture of old socialists and people whose granddad wrote leaning on the lamppost and that's entirely true um and so i think a lot of the people are i mean to me one of the most important elements of all of this is i, I in the last week i've had a bit of a clash with with someone where one of the times that i find a clash and this is not on your question at all but about the people i work with most people i work with i think the first interest they have is about the work itself and creativity the second is hopefully that will also make some money but to start off by saying let's come up with an idea that makes money is a very i think to me personally a negative thing and i, I basically had a run-in with people who a group of people who i know that their first priority is how much can we make from this not what can we make i lean the same way you do on the sense that i like just making a thing because i want the thing to mm. exist i do also have to like you said, think about, I think like show business, the, the, the reason uh, for my mind, the word business is second yeah. is because it should be secondary, but you do always have to go, I do have to, I do have to eat. I do have to make money. Um, you have to be careful about that because I do agree by the way, and I'm not, it's not now because I'm comfortably enough off that, you know, I don't because, but there was a certain point, And I think that the real change in my, what I created was about 
11, 12 years ago when I realized that a lot of the things that I've been aiming at were things that I thought you were meant to do if you wanted to be a successful comedian. So some of the weird little telly shows that I might pop up on or whatever it might be were things that I did not out of a desire, but out of, oh, this is what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this would be a good thing to do, won't it? And actually, I think the more successful things that I've created and the things, you know, what the Infinite Monkey Cage comes out of and what the book club club came out of and what that led to as well uh, and all of those things came out of i want to create a thing i want to make a thing i don't know if anyone wants to see this thing and i think quite often some of the most successful things come when you are not thinking now of course the circuit is a is a comedy circuit now not all, you know the, what i would call the more mainstream element of the comedy circuit i do realize that there are problems there because people are expecting a very crisp 20 minutes and an audience can be give us a joke give us a joke give us a joke give us a joke but i think you should always have your eye on unless that's all you want to do if you just want to make a living doing that and then and then hope to get on a tv show and do the panel shows but if, if you uh, have a different mindset that is looking for some kind of satisfaction of, of taking the ideas you have in your head and creating something with them, then I think it's very important sometimes, to, or quite often, in fact all the time, to think, I want to create this thing, uh, let's just make it. Because that's one of the things we're lucky about. We can make things for almost nothing. We don't have to wait for a £20 million budget. We don't have to wait for a stamp from the, the TV commissioner. We can just go, there's a show, hopefully I can manage to get 10 people to turn up to my Edinburgh show a day or whatever it might be, you know, and well, hopefully we all get more than that. But there is a way of, I mean, the least successful Edinburgh show that I did is one that got me a very large amount of work. And it was bizarre. It was one of these shows which nearly drove me mad. And it's probably one of the saddest times that I had in Edinburgh. One of those times where you find yourself unable to talk to people, actually communicate. You can talk on stage, but you can't do anything else. And you are, and you find yourself walking the streets and suddenly going, oh, my face is wet and it's not raining. Oh, God. You know, all of that stuff. And that show was one that I kept getting calls from people saying, would you like to do a pilot on this? And I wonder if you want to come and do this gig here. And would you like to try and do this? And every time I say, oh, thanks for that's really interesting. I'd love to do that. Oh, uh, just have interest. Why? Oh, we saw that Edinburgh show. Oh, that one that, yeah, yeah, yeah. We really enjoyed it. And that was, you know, that, that moment was what Book Club came out of. And Book Club was what led to me also doing more and more ways of putting science on the stage. And that is what led to me doing Infinite Monkey Cage, which is one of the, the, the joys of, of my life. You know, two weeks ago, I met the 10th man to stand on the moon. That wouldn't have happened if I'd kept going. How do I get onto more panel shows? And that you know, and, and, and how do I manage to get my set so it is a way that can be translatable to anyone from TV going, yep, we need to put this guy on. But it is, I, 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 when I think back to it and I go, and obviously a lot of it's fortune. And, you know, this, this is a thing, it's, you know, it's fortune and on top of that, it is making yourself go, right, I need to create more stuff. The 90s, I wasted so I didn't create enough stuff. I frittered away a lot of my early years in, in stand-up. And then suddenly I got this, uh, the initial bit of going a drive, where I was doing, writing for a lot of TV and stuff. And that was an interesting experience. But by doing that, realising that I didn't want to do that, then gave me the push to create a show that appeared to be a very unsuccessful show that kind of came out of that. But then that led to just enough interest for me to go, oh, I'm going to try out these experiments. You mentioned before that uh, when you were getting asked what you do and someone said you're a comedian and you weren't making like enough money from it, you were a bit hesitant to take that title. How 
long after starting did it take you to get to a stage where not you were comfortable but like you were just able to make a bit of a living out of stand-up i think it's when it's when it's what i was doing that was my my main uh you know life was thinking about stand-up and doing stand-up and i thought well now that is what i do that's actually what i do i think anyone can call themselves anything they want by the way please do not think if anyone listening going hey fascist i'm a comedian i'm just not that's fine you can call it's about what you're comfortable with oh no i was just wondering how long it took from starting to when you made like was it like five ten years or no it was probably i mean i, I was most of my life i've made a living from stand-up and you know a lot of it where you're really scrimping and saving and you're very glad that you the, your flat in in peckham and your flat share is pretty cheap and all that kind of thing uh but yeah o- overall it's um so i i suppose yeah probably within I, when, when, it's hard to know when i started i mean one of the first things i did was so you think you're funny competition which i got runner-up in years and years and years ago but after about a year and a half after that i was able to you know live a life just <laughs> the only reason I was asking that is because was it easier when you weren't making money from it to a be like creative because there's less sort of pressure on oh this is what he does and also did you still feel like an imposter then when you were still because if you you said then oh I'm not a comedian mm. I'm not making money so I'm wondering whether the imposter syndrome was always there from the start or whether it kind of grew from when you were getting more popular I I think it probably grew with greater opportunity i i i again i'm I'm kind of guessing because i have no but um i i think that i had this awkward thing that happened which was basically i started and i've always found bringing people up very difficult so i didn't ring that many clubs but the clubs that i did play i generally got booked quite soon and uh i was doing you know it was going reasonably well getting from the the open spot the 10 minutes to the 20 and then I went downhill and I had, for instance, clubs that I had been uh, a compare of and clubs that I've been in 20s where I got demoted to doing a 10 and then got demoted to doing an open spot. And that's quite rare, I think, in uh, certainly anyone who then continues to do it. But it was like this thing which really was I, I'd realised when I started there was a great again joe brand i remember reading an interview with joe brand where she said um you can't be a comedian until you're 30 because you don't know who you are and of course i was 22 and i was like what a load of old rubbish of course you do now i though i don't think that's entirely true in fact i think it's very interesting to see some of the people who are pretty young who are able to be very interesting comedians i think one of those things is the fact as well that helps is it's never been so many, so easy to access so many different stand-up comics you know when i was growing up i would go to tower records and go oh brilliant i can buy this richard Pryor album or whatever it might be so what was i saying? yeah so i think that that probably contributed to it which was i was getting work and then i was getting less work and i was being demoted and i think that also then meant that people looked on me with suspicion so i would sometimes like say i was doing four nights in a club in a in a town and in fact sometimes i would do better than uh one of the other acts every single night but they would be booked again in three months i would be booked again for a year because i was seen as being a bit of a risk and all of those things feed into it as well did that make you go a different path then because you were like not at that point no, I, I, I think it was... I mean, eventually I started to find... But I really don't... Th- I think it was very recently. I think it, it is... Uh, I say very recently. I'm about to now say it's in this century that I properly found, found out what I really wanted to do with stand-up. I think I was so in love with the idea of being a stand-up that I forgot to actually work out what I actually wanted to do with stand-up. 
and and I think I found that over the the, the last the, the second half of my career. It's the last twelve years, I think, where I go. I worked out what what I should be doing, and I worked out a way of representing uh, the the person that I wanted. You know, the bit of me that I wanted to show on stage I worked out how to do that maybe part of the problem was for the first 10 years I was so obsessed with comedy that I was only a comedian that's all I was thinking that could be a joke 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 and so it meant that I also had my personality though I would improvise quite a lot the jokes didn't really fit together in some ways that's one of the problems is I think sometimes people want a sense of continuity so if one moment you're doing puns the next moment you're doing something silly and the next moment you're trying to do some kind of uh, like kind of hard-nosed satire it's a very confusing personality to watch on stage how would you define then like if, if so for example say a marketing team were coming to you and they said we want to we'd love to work with you what would be the strap line of what your second half Again, of your you keep confusing me for the guy who goes to parties. The guy who goes to parties, he's got that marketing team coming up to him. Um, I, I never really know. Basically, uh, I think what my show's aim to be is uh, kind of uh, passionate diatribes filled with stupidity, but underlying it sometimes, some ideas. that I, I mean, my real thing is I'm desperate to share ideas that I've come across and I go, ah, that's a fantastic idea about why the universe is as it is. Or that's a beautiful bit of philosophy or that that author has written such a great book. So, you know, if it is someone like, you know, Kurt Vonnegut or Philip K. Dick, uh, for instance, or the historian I mentioned, Howard Zinn, uh, or like at the moment I'm working on a show about art because I uh, like a lot of the shows that I, I think I've done recently have been about ideas that I felt people were sometimes fearful that they couldn't get involved in the dialogue about them because they thought they might look like an idiot. So like my, a lot of my science stuff came out of the fact that I go, these ideas are really brilliant and I'm not a particularly clever person and I don't understand a lot of these ideas, almost all of these ideas, but it doesn't mean that I can't approach these ideas and start to have fun with ideas about quantum entanglement or you know the evolutionary behaviour of the bonobo ape or whatever it might be. Um, and in the same way with the art show, I thought, I really love going around art galleries and looking at art. I want to just do something that really celebrates Georgia O'Keeffe and Stanley Spencer and Robert Rauschenberg. And I wonder if I can turn that into a show. So where my shows come from is nearly always, wow, I've just seen that brilliant thing. Oh, I want more people to know about that brilliant thing. Let's make a show about that brilliant thing. And then, of course, sometimes the show changes entirely in that uh you know in, in in turning it from from that thing and other times it also comes from the fact that i think oh that's a stupid thing to think or that's a little bit neurotic or that's a bit odd oh i i wonder if i talk about it publicly whether other people will then go oh yeah that's that like saying about the impulsive thoughts or whatever and i think that can be you know it's it, it's giving yourself very selfishly it's trying to find a use isn't it it's uh and, and so i think i aim for my stand-up to be enjoyable and sometimes useful as well. That's kind of my plan. So I started to think about groups that I'd like to belong to because I didn't really see that I didn't well, you know, I thought about new age people. I thought maybe I could join the new age cult. So I went to Devon, but that was a disaster. I kind of I went to mind empowering crystal shops. And I looked at these things and I thought the only way mind empowering crystals work is if you put one of them on and then immediately go, bloody hell, 50 quid for this rubbish, I can't believe it. <laughs> then your brain is expanding, right? And I would listen to these conversations they were having and there would be things like, my grandmother um, had terrible arthritis, um, but she drank a bottle of olive oil a day. I go, did that work? I don't know, but it was a very quick cremation. Right, so... <laughs> Did you, when you weren't performing, when you were out of stand-up, did you ever worry that your audience would just forget you? 
I didn't get round to do you know what the trouble was it didn't last for, I mean I had a year that was pretty much me predominantly working on other projects I would if someone rang up like sometimes I had a book festival went oh could you do a show for us and I thought do you know what I'd like to do two hours about I'll do a weird little show about horror and weird horror books so I just wrote for as a one-off I wrote a show for one night only on, on on that and then and so I was still doing little bits and pieces and I was also preoccupied with a lot of other things and then Brian Cox said oh I'm going on tour come along let's go on tour together and uh, so within just over a year and a, a bit I was kind of back working with him but I still don't know you know now this is the first tour in the autumn that I've done it's the first one that I've written in three years and it's the first one you know the last tour will have ended two and a half years beforehand will as many people turn up will more people turn up I don't know you know it's, it's um I hope that there's you know there's still people out, but it, it didn't really become a concern you know I, I'm always worried I always hope that there's going to be enough people to allow you to continue to do what you really enjoy doing and that that's the kind of requirement so it was quite an organic return as such it wasn't like some sort of big triumph did you did to your mind was it quite nerve-wracking getting back on stage no it was weird it's like that bit when you have had a bit of a break it wasn't weird doing any of the gigs with brian in fact that's one of the strange things is you know i never really imagined that i'd find myself on the stage of arenas so finding myself playing wembley arena you know, as obviously Brian is the the name on the ticket, uh, and uh, suddenly you know I'd come out and I'd I'd think this is a lot of fun, isn't it? And but I was always doing stuff that I knew as well. It's like each night it had to have because it was a proper show, so it had to have a shape and it had been decided. Right, let's talk about that bit there because this is a show about the universe, and then you can do your bit about evolution there. Um, and that was that was really delightful. But going on for the first time with new ideas was you do stand there and go this is a bit odd because it's not I think with Brian it was predominantly a performance whereas back with trying out the new shows I felt very much more as again a writer performer and and it's an experiment and what can I do with these things but I really enjoyed it it's like I've started writing I don't know if I want to call it poetry because that might make it too people might think you know I'm trying it's like one of the first things I thought when I came back is I should do something that takes me out of my comfort zone so for one of the shows, um, I've tried to write these things that at the very least are meant to have some form of rhythm. Whether that counts as poetry, I don't know. But it, it's written with the intention of it becoming poetry. And I thought, well, that's something I've never done before. Might be rubbish. Might be a terrible way to start a show and some stupid things to put in the middle. But I think it meant that I've come back with a kind of fresh sense of what can I experiment with. And it all came out of just the art show. I was looking at all these beautiful pieces of art. And and I went, what really meant that I definitely was coming back was I went to see this exhibition of a guy called Robert Rauschenberg, who's just a fascinating uh, artist. And he talked about the fact that he wanted his art to come from joy, not from pain. And uh, I just went around this exhibition. And I was with my friend Michael Legg. And I was just smiling. We loved everything. We were going, isn't that a brilliant idea? And lots of stuff that I wouldn't normally like. You know, stuff which is just these kind of strange collages of items found in a street. And sometimes you look at those things, you think, I don't know if any... But the way he did it, you went, he's found... How's he How's he made it so joyful? Because that could be. there could be lots of other bicycle wheels glued onto a canvas that I don't like. But that one's really, really joyful. And that was the point where I just thought, ah, oh, actually... I really have to do a show in Edinburgh, which has loads of stuff about Robert Rauschenberg. You called you called the quitting of stand up an experiment to see if you could you know live without it. What was the best 
like finding or what were the best and worst findings that you had as a result of not performing do you know what there were no uh worst. i i think what shocked me was i imagined that uh it would be hell for my wife because uh yeah blah, 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 you know between seven and ten o'clock they're normally on stage now the adrenaline's just come in can i do some voices um and that didn't really happen and and i think what surprised me was that i didn't miss it i think what happened was i had done so much that actually I had found the right time to take a break from it. And it gave me, you know, every weekend I could go off and go to the seaside with my son and do all that kind of stuff, and we could go and have adventures. Um, so all of that was tremendously enjoyable. And I hope that I remind myself as people start to go, oh, but can you do this date and can you do that date? I go, no, I am not allowed to go back to looking at my diary and suddenly going, oh, I have no time for my family now because I'm doing seven days a week. So I have to make sure that I keep that breathing space around it. So there was no particular, and it was, I mean, in some ways it was, all, it, it, was it was a strangely fortunate time to give up because in the other way I was also, I'll just briefly mention this, but it turned out that during that break, uh, my mum became ill and, and died. And the fact that I was at least able to have all of, you know, to make sure that I could be around. Because sometimes you do look back, and when you're young, you can think that's the only... That's got to do this! This is my life! And then you go, oh, no! That meant I didn't have time to do this and that. And, and then you, you're old, and you think, oh, I'm dropping my child off at university. I wonder what they did at school for the last 18 years. And I've always been very aware of that, and I've always been aware that sometimes I spent too much time concentrating on that and not enough time concentrating on existence and 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 life as well i mean i think stand-up to me is a very yeah, that is my life as well but it needs to be part of it not all of it yeah i can relate you know what i mean it's, yeah, it's, yeah. And, and, and it's a difficult thing because the moment you click back on i mean that's the one thing i did notice there was a sudden point where i had to go out and buy more exercise books to just fill in little notes when i saw things mm. and so after about probably well in fact that was an interesting thing was the first time that i really went back to stand-up was about a month after my mum had died and i came up with a little routine about it and so it was a way of communicating something that was going on and turning it into stand-up and it kind of helped just get that out this particular little thing uh, about her death, which was which is an interesting. I, I talked to Philippa Perry about this psychotherapist. I once had a conversation with her, and uh, she said, uh, to her belief, she used to believe that if you're joking about something, you haven't really come to terms with it. And I mentioned her when I saw her more recently. I said I did this thing, and when I told her the joke, she went, "That's okay because that's actually a joke that takes on what's happened." She said, "There's a different kind of joke." I had this joke, which was just basically, uh, "My mum's died," which is predominantly negative. Uh, but on the upside, I can have my hair cut any way I want now, and it's just a you know throwaway line. And and I told it, and she said, "No, no, because that actually is not ignoring what's occurred." And I thought that's a very interesting thing. And so I think that was part of it. And because around the time that she died, there were some events that I thought, this is ridiculous enough that it almost feels like it should be a routine. Like it turned out we were recording the Infinite Monkey Cage, the Christmas special, on the day that she suddenly got significantly more poorly. And I was then like in that thing going, oh, I don't want to let people down. But should I go home and blah, blah, blah. And then I got a terrible... Uh, and we, we were, at that point, still not expecting her to die quite as soon as she did. And uh, But I then got terrible diarrhea so i had to record a show in front of a live audience and my mum is now very ill and we know she's gonna die 
and I've got diarrhea. And it felt like such a, so I, I have to set up a lot of things with the audience that they know, obviously no one knew him, no one on the panel knew at the time, uh, uh, apart from Brian, the producer, what was going on. Uh, but I also think I have to tell the audience that I might have to suddenly walk off stage because I've got terrible diarrhea. And so there's all of these things going on. You think the ridiculousness of existence. My belief, by the way, is that what happens in those situations, and this may well be wrong, is that your body is under a tremendous amount of stress and it basically says, ah, you need your brain to work. You need to be able to make up things on the spot during a science show, don't you? You can have that if you want, but just so you know, you can't have everything. You'll not be able to digest properly. Things are going to go horribly wrong there. Um, so also, you know, a few months later, I, I found myself talking about that just because it, it felt like, and I, I was, I don't think it's going to be in my show now. I was planning on doing some stuff about uh, things around the time of the death because I wanted to communicate ideas about the fact that I think when someone dies, people sometimes almost get nervous about how they are meant to grieve. And people feel, am I grieve pro grieving properly? And I thought it might be nice to do a, a routine which just takes that on about the fact that you can find yourself still laughing and you can find yourself doing odd things. Uh, and you should not worry about how other people view your grieving. You should not worry about criticism of grieving wrongly because you've got enough to deal with already. So, you know, it might end up in another show at some point, but it felt like there was something to talk about again that might give me the illusion of purpose. But both those things come back to what we were talking about before, where it's you're, you're, you're thinking about yourself more than anyone else will be. Mm. And also um, the split between, you know, do I want to do the thing, you know, that will get me money versus the thing that will, might make me feel purpose or might make me feel excited or whatever. Should I should I spend more time with my family or should I do the day job? And uh, So I suppose it's, uh, it's it, it might have started as a small thing in your mind, but it feels like it, it extrapolates to every area rather than just stand-up. Yeah, it probably does. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think so. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, if you had any advice for so say you could go back to your past self when you were about to quit what advice would you give yourself i'm always really wary about those things because i think that everything you do is kind of done and i wouldn't want to a bit like when i was saying about when people say oh i wish i didn't have this personality trait or that personality trait and you kind of go well unfortunately it's a whole thing it's a whole package and i think that there's nothing in particular that i would i wouldn't want to to change that i think it would have been better in one way to have not done such an incessant amount of touring and and I probably was doing too many other gigs as well but equally that led to the point that it led to and that has ended up being you know uh, for me at the moment anyway a positive thing mm. it's that great uh, Sarah uh, Kendall who is uh, do you know uh, Sarah mm -hmm. you know she's brilliant absolutely brilliant and she's I haven't seen her new show yet the one she's taken to Edinburgh but she's it, apparently it's based around the kind of idea of good news bad news where it's an old I think it may be a Chinese uh, fable which is uh, how does it start it starts off I think where um, a man's horse uh, runs away and uh, people go, oh, that's such bad news, such bad news that you lost your horse. And he goes, good news, bad news, who knows? The horse comes back two weeks later and it actually brings other horses with it. And they go, oh, it's brought more horses with it. That's good news, isn't it? He goes, good news, bad news, who knows? And then his son's trying to train the horse and the horse rears up and the son breaks his leg. And they go, oh, your son's broken his leg, that's bad news. He goes, good news, bad news, how do you know? And the next week there's the army come round and they're getting all the fit young men who are going to go. And it just goes on like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things where, that's why I find it really difficult, the idea of going back and going, I would change this or I'd change that. Okay then, I'll, refer I'll do a different question. 
if you if someone listening to this is struggling with imposter syndrome oh sorry on that level i oh, okay, I answered yeah. the wrong question didn't That's i really? right. i think Maybe the most important thing to know is just that it's you know like i said when i've met people who've who've won the nobel prize i think the bit for me what can be useful is returning to that idea of us we mustn't forget that when we are watching the public person when we're watching people we have to remember that if we're able to sometimes put on a front that appears to give some sense of confidence but inside we're struggling well why the hell isn't everyone else and that actually our our experience and our you know all of all of those neuroses don't imagine that you're so special that they are individual to you and i think that's part of the problem i think is with so much social so many social situations people feel that they have to put on so much front and i've always found that weird where you know i'm lucky enough to most of the people that i socialize with i've always felt you know the people who uh, may well have some form of eccentricity or whatever and there is a point of honesty where you can quite often bring up strange ideas without fear of judgment people who are in i suppose very specific certain work environments where there is a pecking order there is always the fear that you will say something that may well be oh my god i said that and now i'm going to be judged in the wrong way and i might not make the next stage and i'm now not i've lost some of my importance in this particular office space and and i think that is that's why we are rather than have that we go oh my god i've just said something and uh, it's so ridiculous it's got a really good laugh and it may well be a new edinburgh show so we have that advantage. So I think that's, for me, it, and, and it's the Gully Jimson thing again. It's that bit of realising that so many people are there going, oh, why doesn't it look like it does in there? And actually the way what it looks like in there may well never be possible. So, you know, enjoy the fantasies you may well have of some of your achievements and the sculptures you've made in your head. And then when you look at the other sculpture, you go, uh, oh, well, that's, yeah, it didn't quite work out. But I've still got the one in my head, though. That was a good version. That was Robin. Can't tell you how happy I am with how that came out. I know there's a lot of other mental health podcasts available and out there, and I hope this one has its own grounds and merits to exist, as I've been trying to make this one a little different so that you get a well-rounded view of the performer on and off stage. I hope that came across. I hope you really enjoyed that. For me, one of the biggest takeaway points was when he was talking about how people's outer confidence is often mistaken for their inner confidence. I think if we all take a minute and look in detail, we can discover that that is not the case, and it's really easy to presume that it is. I do it all the time. I've done it at a gig this week. I can't help myself from doing it. I think it's my default. I think it's everyone's default. But it's good to know that I'm not the only one that does it. I also liked him when he was talking about the impact of his sense of purpose on his self-identity and whether he was living up to a stereotype of being a comedian who was depressed or whether he was actually being depressed and feeling the hardship of being on the road for so long. Last year on tour, as I said in the podcast, I had a similar issue where I was feeling it and I was worried about it and... I didn't really talk to anyone about it at the time because I just wanted to go to bed and get up and travel to the next place, which is fine, but on long-term tours and longer tours, that's obviously going to take a toll on people. I think we all need a sense of purpose and we all need a reason to get up in the morning. And as cheesy as this is going to sound, I'm really glad Robin found his again. few quick bits of admin. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to support the show, please do share the link with someone you think will get some value from it. Also, if you could leave it an honest review in iTunes, that'd be great. I mean, ideally five stars or at the very least a four-star review that reads like a five-star. <laughs> um... 
I've just got back from Edinburgh and that running joke between performers is still fresh in my mind. I don't know if it'll make any sense to someone who doesn't do comedy, but I'm leaving it in. Please do subscribe. There's going to be more. This is not going to be a one-off. If you'd like to donate towards the podcast financially, you can do that on the PayPal button, which is at simonkane.co.uk. Speaking of websites, Robin and myself are on tour. Separate tours, not the same tour. But if you'd like to know more about where Robin is going to be performing in the next six months, I think his tour is six or seven months, you can find a link in the show notes. I'm also going on tour for the next five to six months. So if you'd like to come down and support either one of us or both of us, support both, support both, uh, you can find a link for that in the show notes. And as I said before the podcast, there is a Facebook group you can join to talk about any of the issues from the podcast. Please do be supportive and friendly. I really want this to grow into a nice little place where we can all discuss things that we've learned from the podcast or ways that we can help deal with certain things that we're coping with. It's called Laughter is the Best Placebo and the link is in the show notes or you can find it by searching Laughter is the Best Placebo podcast on Facebook, obviously. Have you had to deal with imposter syndrome? How did you deal with it? Did you take a break from whatever it was that you were feeling an imposter in or did you just work harder at it and push through? What was your best advice? I'd love to hear some stories from you in the podcast group. Please do feel free to leave a comment underneath the post and I'll read them and I'll get back to everyone who does. A massive thank you to Robin for taking part. The music was by David Jordan. Otherwise, all other elements were created by me, comedian Simon Kane. This has been a fruit that got in Gravity's Way production for the internet. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for supporting. I will see you all in the next episode. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.